Kia ora e te whanau and welcome to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building. Join us as we delve into personal stories about inspirational career journeys for people in design and construction, as you too build your own story. Uh, this is Guy Marriage coming to you today. I'm an architect and a lecturer. You may have heard of me. Occasionally I write things. Uh, I talk quite a lot, but I'm going to try not to talk today. So instead, first up, we're going to be talking to Gina Jones, who has also been a number of things in her life, uh, including she was an architect still and me. she still is. She's going to talk to us about that. Uh, but she's had a, a varied career in architecture along the way and in construction and has been dabbling with many fingers in many pies. So um, I'm going to start off with a, um, a question to you, Gina, just for you to um, share with us what sort of led you to choose a career in this in this construction architecture industry. I don't think that I actually really chose it. I think it was chosen for me. Um, one of my earliest of memories of thinking about architecture was that um, I loved playing with the then precursors of Lego because of course it wasn't um, invented or didn't hadn't reached New Zealand shores um, by then designing houses and um, we had an aunt staying once and she suggested that I should become an architect and I had no idea of course what an architect was and that would have been around seven or eight around that that stage when I mentioned it to her recently, she was quite mortified that she might have chosen my career for me. But I also liked um, looking at the beautiful um, sunset books we had around in the 1970s, which had house plans and gardens and how to build outdoor fireplaces, which my parents had um, around the house because they were preparing to build a new home. So when I was about nine, um, my parents started building a new family home in Nio. My father was a engineer, and he designed it. Well, I, I think he did. It was a Lockwood, and everything was done to maximise space and minimise waste. So it was a square box. Um, we all had our own bedrooms. There was four of us kids, and they were all built to the minimum size allowable, which was um, regulated at that stage. There was no hallways in it. Everything was open plan. And it had a concrete spiral staircase um, connecting the floors with no handrails. Sounds great. It was um, pretty awesome. And you could sort of jump off the stairs onto beanbags. And yeah, it was pretty cool. So my father headed the systems laboratory in the Ministry of Works, which was a division that seemed to create things like the base isolation system for earthquakes. Not that I knew that at the time. I only found out when I went to do an architectural school project and um, was speaking to someone at the Ministry of Works and they said, why don't you just ask your father this? <laughs> it's really, really embarrassing. But anyway, he brought home at that stage, this is the late 70s, mid to late 70s, um, computer drawings showing the house in 3D, which, you know, I didn't sort of think at the time that um, that was probably one of the first uses of BIM in New Zealand. So it's... Pretty exciting to sort of think back to that. Um, and then when I started college, so we still at the same house, I babysat at a house a couple of 
doors down, which was a Roger Walker house. And that one, instead of being the big, the square box that ours was cut into the hill, the Roger Walker one cascaded down the hill. So quite a difference between what an architect did and an engineer did in terms of a house. But both houses, um, in building them, um, removed as few trees as possible. So, um, so there's a Nio bushclad sections. I think our one only removed one dead tree. And then while I was also at college, um, we were campaigning for a student centre for a number of years. I'm one of these people who just seems to get caught up in campaigning for things. Um, but when it was finally becoming to be built, the architect team came and spoke to some of us student reps. And I was just really, really impressed that there's this job out there that you could, um, you weren't sitting behind a desk, you're actually um, out meeting people and thinking and consulting, and that, I think, was really, really powerful for me. 1970s were also a big time of protest in New Zealand. Like, we used to joke that on Friday nights we used to go to protest marches, so there was just about always one on, anti-apartheid, gay rights, abortion, nuclear ones as well. So I remember visiting Jerick Wilson's house in Kandala, and so um, that was with my father, we were picking up some, or dropping off some posters, I think, for anti-nuclear, and it was just a really interesting house. I think he had three or four boys, I can't remember the number, but their bedrooms were all just cubicles with curtains, between them, which is a really cool way of um, thinking about things. But Derek Wilson's a name to remember because he's had he had quite a big influence on my life. Um, those experiences, and coupled with being really good at school with both left and right brain thinking, as well as a huge amount of encouragement from my father, um, who was not going to let me study anything other than, or anything that didn't have a degree associated with it, so he arranged for me to spend a day with a woman architect at the Ministry of Works and then for me to meet the new professor at the School of Architecture, which was Helen Tippett. So um, given that sort of exposure, I just thought that was a, quite a normal career for a female to, to do. But anyway, so I, I started um, doing my architecture intermediate and my parents um, split up three days afterwards and my mum was a bit of a mess and she'd been a stay-at-home mum and now needed to find a way of supporting four children two who were too old for, to get the domestic purposes benefit um, associated with it. And my father just buggered off. So um, I took a couple of years off to make sure architecture was something that I wanted to do and it wasn't that was something for my father. And so I worked for a couple of years, um, first year at AMP and then the second year at broadcasting as a computer operator, which was a really awesome part-time job. Well, when I went to go to university, they gave me a part-time job, which was working weekend shifts and if people were away over Christmas and things. But basically as a computer operator, you can study about 80% of the time and back in the days it was a mainframe computer computer that took up probably about a third of a floor in the Bowen State Building. So um, now I used to type my assignments on this mainframe computer and like everyone else there's handwritten so it was really good. I think it helped me being a bit of a techo geek at the time. That's how I got in. That's, fan that's a fantastic <laughs> um, introductory life story as well but 
a great arc that you've had in your in your journey from uh, from start to to, mm. to the start of where you're where you're going to. But I think it's really interesting that you had that early exposure to a, a female architect at the Ministry of Works, oh. uh, but also um, with Helen Tibbet, but also that you had this really good connection with um, two of Wellington's greatest architects, yeah. um, Miss Wilson and Mr Walker, um, and uh, both completely sort of opposite ends mm. of the spectrum, mm. which would have given you a really wide-ranging um, sort of insight into, into things. Because at that stage, New Zealand was... Probably not that exciting in terms of architecture, <laughs> no. but um, you know you actually um, saw from some of the people who who really were thinking differently. And, mm. and Roger, if you're out there, you're still thinking differently, which is great. Mm. Um, so that's, that's really good. Okay, tell us then what what happened from from then on. When, when you when did you get your degree? Your your first. Um, so it took me a long time. Um, I had my job at broadcasting, and then at the end of second pro, so the first degree, which is a building science degree back then, my communications lecturer, Graham Anderson, offered me a holiday job, which coincidentally was in practice, in the practice with Bull Toomer and um, Derek Wilson. And basically, I never left my holiday job. The project I was working on initially was a development brief for design competition at Queen Margaret College. And the first day I went down to the site to take some photos and um, or just actually taking photos for the brief and you know back in the days that was with a camera, no digital things back then. Um, the then principal Mary McCree called me into her office and basically took me under her wing from that day on. And I think she must have insisted I have some sort of leading role in the um, project, you know, so there's a female role model for her students. And that relationship with her lasted the rest of her life with me being the college's architect for at least the next 25 years and I designed alterations to her home and attended her 70th birthday with um, my husband Malcolm. Um, so I was on that project for seven years and I think I got a bit of a false impression of the industry. So I remember Queen Margaret College is a girls college and um, the project team and this is the early 1980s, by the contractor, was often fem all-female at the site meeting, so we had the principal, the chair of the board, who I think it might have been the first female chair they'd have of the board of governors, quantity surveyor, um, building services engineer, Susan Barlock, structural engineer, Helen Ferner. Um, so the poor um, contractor was um, in a minority, and I don't think I've actually ever had that on a project um, since, but... I had all these things that gave me a really, I guess, false impression of the um, industry. My first on-site project was a structural upgrade and refurbishment of BNZ Tiaro, which was pretty well finished um, when I started my holiday job, but that was with LT McGuinness and with Jim McGuinness. The McGuinnesses were fantastic, and they still are. They, um, Jim McGuinness really took me under his wing and took time out to explain things to me and why they were doing things and you know, I was at second pro I hadn't been out on the site before and it was such a good experience I have to say as if all my experiences with McGuinness on Project since it's been really cool and now I'm working obviously with the next generation of McGuinnesses which is so so you haven't had that typical or what we might think of a typical as uh, a sexist hairy old man 
being horrible to, to young women on site. Your, your experience no, has been the opposite. I've, like I've had a few, like, um, on the Queen Margaret project. Oh, my gosh. So this, the Queen Margaret, um, we were matching stud heights of the building, two-storey timber frame building. Ground floor stud height was 5.2 metres. I used to wear quite high shoes, high, you know, stiletto shoes. It was the 1980s. You know, I was... The college had a lot of women teachers wearing that, and you sort of want to look the part. And there's not not much such things as um, proper steel cap boots. So I did have some some high heel ones, and like you'd go out to sight, have your heels on, you'd be walking along the joists at five point two meters off the ground, and of course the contractor would be saying, "Hi, love, you can hold my hand if you like." And so there was that sort of stuff. Nothing probably more than that, I don't think. I, I, that's a great story, but I am amazed that you can still remember how high the stud height was of a building that you did <laughs> some years ago. I can't remember what the stud height of the project I worked on last week. Uh, Fantastic. So um, eventually you got uh, qualified and registered. Yep, yep. And uh, did, So did you go straight through and do that, or did you take a no, while to do I, that? Um, so I'd finished my Bachelor of Building Science when I'd started working with... Um, to my TWIA, um, to my course in Yvonne Anderson. And I did my next two years of my architecture degree part-time while I was working on the Queen Margaret project. And I think back then the school was a lot more technical. Like, you know, we could have to do cal- manual calculations for, you know, the structure of a multi-storey building and the airflow and ducts and, like, how often have I used that? And you sort of wondered what use some of these were going to be. But being on that that project, there was things that we did, like some of the sunlight analysis and making sure that you know, rooms weren't going to overheat and that sort of thing were really useful. So it was for me, it was really good doing it that way because I could see the Bachelor of Building Science tied into the Bachelor of Architecture and had some practical use. So that was excellent. It was really hard, though, um, you know, how you got projects going across different subjects, so you'd end up doing more work then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm teaching at the school, and um, as you probably know, but the, I find the problem with students nowadays is that they they tend to over they tend to want to overachieve, so sometimes I try and make a small assignment for them, and they try and do twice as much because they think that they should be... It's like, I'm trying to give you something simple mm, to do. Mm. But a lot, a lot of things today are based on the computer. So it sounded as though you got introduced to the scientific side of things, um, but the computer side of things, when did, yeah. when did that interest in the computing and technology start with you? Oh, my gosh. When I was in the sixth form at school, I was in a really serious car accident. I make a habit of having accidents. Um, and I missed a term off school. And my father had been on the Board of Governors and for whatever reason, had bought the school's first computer, I suspect, because of his time with the systems laboratory. And he had it at home, I'm assuming, to set it up. And we had a maths project that we had to do, and it was of our choice. And what I did was got this computer to randomly generate art patterns and things, um, which my father must have... um, given me a lot of help with the programming because I'm not sure that I could still program today. 
so that was um I think the first sort of start and then at broadcasting I was using the computer and everyone else I was using the mainframe computer and everyone else was doing their assignments by hand and then my um, research report at university was about um, AutoCAD and the New Zealand architect and so this was at the time that we were debating in the office as to whether we should invest in a fax machine or not so it was really, really early on. I remember we got the a Apple um, Macintosh in the office, and that would have been like 1984, you know, when they first came out. So it's sort of very early on. It was sort of my research was looking at, you know, how this might be used and, I guess, impact on the thinking. I have to read it again because I don't actually can't remember what I said. But I, um, when I had my own practice, I spent a lot of time, I really can't stand wasting time doing things like, like doing, like taking notes at a meeting and then turning it into minutes. So I developed these apps and things that you could do it directly at the meeting um, and like I published my minutes at the meeting um, or soon after and just, just to speed things up with instructions on site, so I could go around with whatever device I had back then, so it was with using FileMaker. So I got sort of development level with that and went over to courses to learn how to do it in Australia a few times. There's also like Procore. Um, when that sort of came on, we were very early adopters with it um, on the, well, I guess the Wickles building, PwC Tower, which was with Alton McGuinness and Bob Hall, who's a former um, past president. He was one of the project managers on it. And we were the first use of point cloud scanning on that project. What year would that have been? Oh, don't ask me that. It was, on the, it was recently. First yeah. use in Wellington. Wow, that's pretty um, cool. And then everything, we decided to, mo- we had to model everything properly. So you couldn't just do a column that went from ground to you know, level 10, you had to draw it 10 times for each floor. So then we used it for the first time with 4D programming. And so um, we could watch the the structural work we were doing. We could work out the program from that. And when we got told at one stage that we were going to do the structure from the top down and we got told we had to reverse it to the top up, and so that that was so useful to be able to reprogram that, and we actually ended up saving six months on the program. So it was really um, great use of um, technology. Absolutely. And it was a project that was you know solely structural, um, and we could use the model to sort of show you know the engineers came up with their ideal solution, which you know cut out a massive amount of retail space because there wasn't enough head height. So we could use that to do the walkthroughs and things um, very early use. But I think that it's always a risk with technology, I think particularly on greenfield sites and residential projects, that you know there's the real power in the pencil and that mind-hand um, link. So um, one of my favourite books is um, The Power of the Pencil by, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Yuhani Plasma, um, who's a Pritzker 
winning architect, and I still speak um, in Australia. But it's um, how you sort of become, and I guess you see this every time people are walking down the street. We're walking down the street in Wellington, I saw it this morning. People are just so engaged in what's going on on their phone that they don't see where they're walking and they're not engaging with their environment. And it's sort of, I guess, a reminder you know, if you've got pencil on your hand, it's a reminder to stop and think and be connected and connected to the environment. So I think there's, it's important to have a real balance between the old school, which I think is going to make a bit of a comeback, and um, the technology. So you think there's still there's still power in the pencil nowadays? There's still um, you know, a place for old school media uh, along with this very high-tech world? That yeah, um, I think it's one of the things that led me to do... I did a Master of Fine Arts, um, whew, I probably finished that maybe 14 years ago at RMIT. I think that was one of the reasons that led me to do that. This episode is proudly sponsored by Jib Plasterboard, your local plasterboard manufacturer. Jib Plasterboard offers a wide range of training programs and technical help for lining installation, fire resistance performance, noise control, wet area systems, and rigid air barrier solutions. Please call the Jib Helpline team on 0800 100 442 for technical support or register for a training session at jib.co.nz slash training and events. How does all your family life fit into this incredibly busy <laughs> architectural life that you have? Um, does it does it fit in? Do you have time for a family? Um, well, I used to bring my stepkids along to functions all the time, Institute of Building ones. Um, I probably just got, got so engrossed in what I'm doing that I don't think they got left behind. Um, but everything was at a million miles an hour. It's certainly not now that I've got concussions, so maybe that's it's life's revenge on me. I haven't had concussion myself, <laughs> but I believe that it slows you down and and, oh. and you have to take things just a little bit easier, which might be a good yeah, a good thing in your case. Yeah. Um, well, except if I had room in my head for other things, it just gets yes so overwhelmed. So it's you know not the greatest but um, no it's allowed me to focus on the work of the registered architects board which I'm still chair of um, for a few more months until we get a new minister who adds my replacement can you talk us can you talk us through that uh, journey into the registered architects board um, how you got involved in that and what you've been doing I think the registered architects board when I came on was probably stuck in the last century, it's fair to say. The team had been there since the start of the board, so um, the Act came in in 2005, and um, they were real technophobes, to put it mildly. And they were all of the same sort of age, so um, the CE announced his retirement, I think, at the end of my first year, and a month later got cancer and we never saw him again and we had COVID come in February, you know, two months after he told us. He'd given us something like seven months' notice. So we've had a really um, tough time. 
and we'd had a um, massive backlog of complaints and disciplinary hearings to deal with. Um, but on a more positive note, we um, this year finally signed a mutual recognition agreement with the UK, which we did jointly with Australia. We have, um, under the Ta Trans-Tasman Mutual Recognition Act, we basically you can go between Australia and New Zealand if you're registered and your registration's valid. Um, there are some minor things to go through, but not much. Um, and so we've now got one with the UK, which is, unfortunately for people my age, um, you have to have a Masters of Architecture. And back in the day, we got two bachelor's degrees. Um, but for the younger people coming through, um, it's a pretty well direct sign-off. So we've um, had UK architects who've been working here for years who haven't bothered getting registered to... Um, make that change, so that's pretty exciting. Um, okay, let's put the scenario to you. If you were starting out in construction today, what advice would you give to somebody? I think something that was really important to me was joining and participating in organisations. So, um, Institute of Building, I joined as a student. So, Helen Tippett was it must have been in fourth pro, um, you know, giving a lecture and sort of talked about this organisation that was um, pan industry. And it just sounded really good that you'd be, you know, you could go to something and you'd meet engineers and contractors and quantity surveyors, the whole works, and, you know, encouraged us to join up. I think I had a $10 joining fee. Back then, little did I know it would only been going for a year, <laughs> and um, so I've been a member for thirty nine years, which is um, quite funny. But um, but I did go along to both Institute of Architects and NZIV functions um, while I was still a student. And I have to say that Institute of Architects ones, there was all these men in suits talking in huddles to themselves, and. I don't know whether Helen Tippett had paved the way or what, but Institute of Building was always really welcoming and, you know, keen to get you involved. Uh, I sometimes got, probably got, you know, got onto committees very early on and um, eventually you know, so I became, went onto the chapter board. I just found it really useful when I was starting to become involved in projects when we might have been negotiating tenders and things to know the people I was working with. Um, like one project was St John's Presbyterian Church, where and it was a big, big deal in the day. Um, it was full redevelopment of the site, and they'd sold their air rights because um, it was a heritage site back in the day. You could sell the excess height that you couldn't um, use to someone. They got millions of dollars for it. So they were doing this... Um, big redevelopment, which we'd won by an architectural competition. And we came to doing the tender negotiation. So you know, we'd done all the documentation, gone to tender. We had two firms that had tendered within $500 of each other, Fletcher's and Mainzig. So we called them both into the office and the church committee, two people from the church committee, um, 
John Hunt, who used to be at the council, and Elaine Pierce, who um, was the chair, and myself, just decided we'd interview them. So they, Mainzell came along, didn't address anything to um, Elaine, everything to John Hunt. And um, Fletcher's came in, Bob Hall was there, he'd actually rang up beforehand to find out who was on the committee, who the players were, and were just really, really inclusive. And so they got that job solely because they um, were communicating properly and you know, being really inclusive. And it was a really, um, I think, quite a powerful lesson um, for me and for, for probably for Mainzel if they ever heard about it. I'm not there anymore. But. Absolutely. Look, I, I keep saying to my students that one of the most important things that there is about the jobs in architecture and in construction is communication. Oh. It's like, you know, the reason we do drawings is not because we have to do an assignment or not because we have to get it to council, it's we have to communicate. And that's, yeah. that's and communicating clearly for all of those people listening, that's your key thing in life is you've got to yeah. communicate clearly. Oh. And that means verbally, yeah. means drawn, it means when you're in a meeting with somebody. So talking yeah. to the right people is a, is a good thing to do. Um, yeah, all those, those sorts of things, it's, really, really good um, points. It's, it's absolutely um, key. Yeah. Um, but I did um, go on to become, I think this is me talking about getting involved with um, organisations and things, I think it's really important. So I did go on to become um, national president of the Institute of Building, and um, that was by election, so that to stand about against someone but I don't think I would have done that if my board colleagues hadn't been really like it wasn't something that I initiated that people on the chapter board and the national board were really supportive of me doing it and I still don't know to this day how I won but I did and um, that was a massive experience for me because I was only 35 I think at the time so it's mega Young, like I feel so much better equipped now to do something like that than I was back then. But like, the guys were really, really supportive, and we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun. And we, we might, you and I, we might know more now that we're a bit older. But yeah. I think there's something to be said for the the energy and the passion of, of the young who who will leap into something boots and all. Yeah. Not knowing how much work there's going to be, and, and <laughs> you and I might be yeah. too tired to, to yeah. cope with that, but we can say, "Yep, that's a yeah. good job. You go and do that." And I think that you know the guys were all generally older than me, but not that much. They weren't like I didn't think I was sitting around the board table with my father's generation. I should tell you some Alex stuff. You can ask me a question about that. <laughs> now I know you've been involved in a number of other institutions, not just NZIOB and NZIA. What about your involvement with NAWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction? So that was um, that was that came about by because um, I was one of the co-founders with Stacey, and that came about. I was working on the St John's site, and Colin Chamberlain from Fletcher's was running it. One day Colin said to me that, you know, we've got this young quantity surveyor, female quantity surveyor, um, starting with us. And he said, I think it'll be really good for you to meet. And, you know, back in the day, there weren't that many 
females in the industry. Like I was the only female in my year at architecture school. So, um, and um, I remember going to a bigger function with I think there were four hundred people there and being the only female. And I was, um, I was sort of quite horrified that, by that, and sort of felt like I needed to blend in a bit after that. And I dyed my hair brown and bought a navy suit afterwards. <laughs> I have to say, the brown hair didn't last very long. That's blondes do have more fun. Um, but um, going back to Nawak, anyway, Stacey and I um, met and got together, and we were both sort of lamenting, you know, that there's not very many. Um, females visible in the industry. So this was the early 1990s, early to mid. And um, we sort of said, well, why don't we just get together a group, email all the females we know, and get together as a group so that we can support each other. And while we were doing that, um, Helen came back from Australia where she'd been um, lecturing and said, I've just been to the launch of this um, amazing organisation, National Association of Women in Construction, and and she said to me, you know, I think we should do um, something like that in New Zealand, and that you're really well placed to do it. And I was at that time, I think I just become chapter um, chair, so you know, we got all these women together, and everyone agreed that what a fabulous idea that was. So this was all in Wellington and it sort of just grew from there where we it was mainly just a way of women being able to get together and talk about you know industry woes and and that you know so you didn't feel so alone and then in 2013 there were sort of rumours that someone in Auckland might be trying to um establish another sort of group of similar sort of group of females and so Stacey said well why don't we just go nationwide so we got together and um, I put my hand up to be the the inaugural chair partly because I'd had all the experience with NZIB and we had a planning day at our place in Greytown under our walnut tree we spent two days and we had a facilitator, Juliet McKee, and we came up with a really strong strategic plan. We came up with the three words, um, respect, inspire, include, which are still the words that they use, really powerful words, a strategic plan, um, which was a one-pager, and goals for that first year. One of those goals was the awards, and that was my task. I think now they're one of the biggest awards in the country and my gosh when I went to them down in Christchurch this year it was just I think the best example of inclusivity and the cultural awareness and it was just so well done it was um and so proud that you know where it had come from like you know now we could started with Stacey and I basically brainstorming in our converted garage pretty amazing just what you know what one person can do or one person tied to someone else it just sort of just been reflecting on that a bit lately and I think it's just really um, a a really powerful thing and that just comes from being involved and so I think that's um, really powerful I I was a, a judge 
on the NARWAC panel for, I think, three or four years. Mm. I was also a member of NARWAC. I think I was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. The only one or maybe one of two members of, yeah. male members of, of NARWAC. And um, it was... It was good, but I always felt a little bit like a, of a fraud because I'm, uh, despite all appearances, I'm not actually a woman. And um, so, you know, the, the, but as you say, very inclusive organisations, mm. very keen to say, you know, you're all welcome. Mm. And, and that's been a really good yeah. part of the thing. And I think that um, I was going to come back to Derek Wilson, that one of the things with um, Derek, so he, he was obviously a director of the firm when I first joined, and they had in their partnership agreement that when you're 65 you had to retire, which is just about unheard of for architects now. Like, uh, As architects, as a profession, the youngest architect presently is 28, the oldest is in his 90s, and a third of all architects are over 60, two thirds over 50, so it's not a, not a young profession. We've got a blip going through with the boomers, but... It's really important for the industry to retain that the grey hairs. And so when um, Derek retired and I'd started my own practice, um, I used to get Derek to come in and work with us because it was just so good having his grey hair and knowledge and he just drew the most beautiful drawings. And, yeah, I think it's just a really, they're really powerful um, learnings. Because you don't want to reinvent the wheel that's already been reinvented by your predecessors. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end things on, um, to keep on learning from the past, mm. not to reinvent the wheel, because as you say, the wheel's already there. Let's mm. let's um, just put some better rubber on the edge of the tyre and keep on roaring away into the future. How does that sound? That sounds excellent, because you know, we should all be in it together. Absolutely. Gina, look, it's been a pleasure having you along here today and um, hearing about your your journey along the way. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tall Stories, Tales from the Built Environment, a podcast series by the New Zealand Institute of Building.